Hi and welcome to the Unconventionalist Podcast. I'm Mark LaRoost and this is the show about what it's really like to turn your message into a movement. And today, people, is a very special day for a couple of reasons. One, this is the 100th episode, people. Can you believe it? We got to 100 episodes. I can't quite believe it's crazy. The second thing is that to the day, three years ago was the day that I published the very first episode over on iTunes and I'll get a bit more into the background story of the unconventionalist as we go back through memory lane and and explain to you a bit more about what I've learned over the course of the last 100 episodes and in case you missed out on my previous episodes on on my social media on Instagram and so forth we actually came together for a live recording in London with an amazing audience as well as two fantastic guests that I'll tell you a bit more about uh, in, in the next few minutes but it's just been an incredible experience and an overwhelming sensation of publishing this episode. And, and it's taken me a little while to get this out, but I wanted to make it right. And I'm just so, so happy. Before I get into that, though, I must speak about the one thing that's happened over the weekend. And in case you've been hiding underneath a rock or simply hate football, well, France won the World Cup and the final against Croatia on Sunday, the 15th of July, which is exceptional since I'm half French and that feels pretty amazing. But also it's the second time that I've won it. And it made me think about a few little trivias about the World Cup and why I got so excited about the World Cup. And I actually think no other world competition in the world when it comes down to sport unites the world such as the Football World Cup. None other. Not the Olympics. Certainly not uh, any other kind of global federation in your national countries that you call global um but it's just they've been this incredible sensation especially being in england where the whole country got together and it felt great especially with the whole brexit conversations and all that dire stuff and trump and all this like really negative information news out there that it was just this fascinating thing about coming together drinking some pints and having some fun uh, over some good games and in case you didn't know it's actually the, the the fifa was founded back in 1930 and i think it was france actually that came up with it but i could be wrong so it's been going on for like what 88 years something like that and they've had about 21 world cup tournaments to date but only eight national teams have actually won it and that's a bit crazy because when you think about it, there are 32 teams who compete for the prestigious title the holy grail of football for the for the world cup trophy and i know you're probably asking yourself but who was the most successful team of all time well it's brazil they've, they've won it five times and they actually happen to be the only team that played in every single tournament unfortunately the last few world cups they haven't been doing that great but um but that's that's okay we'll, we'll give it to them but it's been a fantastic reminder also of what happens when you actually have a clear goal in mind that you're trying to pursue and and nothing unites a team or or, or an organization or a company or a squad or what have you like having a clear purpose to strive for and to the belief in, in going despite all uncertainty and all the odds. And that reminds me a little bit how this podcast started. Now, what's been interesting in this journey of trying to figure out actually the origins of the unconventionalist, and it, it was to go back and, and actually see it, the, the, the real truth of data as opposed to what I thought it was. And it turns out on the 16th of February, 2015, I was invited to attend the launch event of the Inspired 50 in London because I'd been apparently selected as one of the inspired 50 people in London who inspired people to go and do great things. And that felt totally crazy to me because there's a there's a picture I shared on the event um, where there's basically, I'm, I'm surrounded by a bunch of incredible human beings, uh, including Dave 
Cothwell, I never know how to pronounce his name, but he skateboarded across Australia. The Sophie Radcliffe, she uh, was the Alpine Coast to Coast Challenger. Then you had Julia Imonen, who's a Sky Sports presenter, who basically sailed across the Atlantic. You had Danny Bent, the founder of Project Awesome, who was also a previous guest, and he was the runner-up in the Ultimate Hell Week TV show. He's also the founder of, uh, yeah, as mentioned, Project Awesome. And then you had Sean Conway, who became the first person to cycle, swim, and run the length of Great Britain. He's got a huge ginger beard from Zimbabwe, incredible individual. And finally, you had Will Hudson, who became the first person to cycle across all seven continents dressed as Superman. And then there was me, and I felt totally crazy, but I felt so out of place, but my friends and family came to support me. It was a great event. And I got to speak to all these people. I was so inspired by all their crazy adventures. And, and one thing, they all came across super normal. And I was like, well, wow, like all these people are just super normal and they're just doing these incredible things. And how can that be? And so I had this crazy idea on the night of like, wow, how cool would it be to just capture these stories so I can, I can broadcast them to people, broadcast them to people so people could hear them and be inspired by them and go off and do something incredible themselves. And actually the first, the first thing I did was following up that event. I think the organizer sent us all an email saying, hey, thanks for being here. You know, hope you enjoyed it. And everybody was replying saying, great event. Thanks. I'm to be part of this. And I actually sent an email back saying, hey, it was awesome. And in fact, I'm, I'm thinking about launching this podcast. If you're up for it, let me know. And uh, we'd love to have you on the show. And most people replied back saying, hey, that sounds great. But just let me know once you kind of um, get going, right? When you've got a few episodes out there. And the only person to actually come back with a big fat yes was Anna McNuff. And she's a writer. She's an adventurer. She's a speaker. She's an ex-row for Great Britain. Uh, and she was to be my first first guest on the show. But the problem is that she was running across New Zealand at the time. <laughs> and uh, she said she couldn't find a reliable Skype connection. So she recommended I get in touch with her friend, Ed Hewitt. Now, you might not remember this, but actually... Ed Hewitt was the first guest on the show, and he's the, the guy who quit his corporate job to go and walk from Bangkok to Birmingham along the Silk Road by foot. And I remember at the time I was uh, at my ex-girlfriend's flat in Edinburgh, and I was sitting there on my laptop while she was studying or doing some work about uni. I forgot where she was. And it was the 6th of March, 2015. And via Skype, I jumped on uh, this call with, with Ed, and that was my first uh, interview. Right. It, it was like this first interview. Lots of things went wrong. The Internet connection wasn't great. And uh, but it was this first interview. And, I, and it took me such a long time to actually publish it. For some reason, it took me like a few months, actually. Um, two months later, on the 22nd of May, 2015, I published the first episode on this platform called Podomatic or Podomatic. I never know how to pronounce that either. Um, but they didn't really do anything with it. I kind of just left it there. And then it wasn't until the 17th of July, 2015, that I uploaded the first episode on iTunes. And well, the rest really is, is history. And, and we're like now with a hundred episodes. And if you go back to episode number one, I'm actually saying, welcome to the yet to be named podcast, which felt totally crazy. And someone asked me today, where did the name The Unconventionalist come from? And I had to retrace that. And it was back at a, at a it was like a dinner at November. I was sitting next to uh, Garrett, the uh, country manager of South Africa and uh, at the time. And I was sitting about my first job at, uh, in this media company, and I was going around the world basically selling these editorials and newspapers and an extraordinary amount for uh, for countries in, in developing emerging economies. And he was like, oh, basically, you were a media hustler. I was like, yeah, media hustler, that sounds, that sounds fun. And then media hustler somehow uh, became an uh, unconventional hustler. And then that became the unconventionalists. Um, so that's how the unconventionalists began. And it was also to try and re make a reference back to these incredible guests and people who are doing things differently and who prove that there is no one way of doing things and that you can follow your heart, be a good person to the world and care and want to share your message with the world. And that's what it was all about. And we're now across 100 different countries around the world. We've reached over 40, 000, 45,000 downloads. 
and we've had some incredible, incredible guests. And, and I've got to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening, for tuning in, for tagging me in your Insta stories. More and more of you are tagging me, so please continue to do that. Take a screenshot of your phone right now. Put it on your Insta story. Let me know that you're listening or where you're listening. Take some photos. Hit me up. I'm, I'm, I'm on Instagram. We just hit 5,000 uh, followers on, on my Instagram account. Thank you so much for being there. If you're there, it's, it's growing community. So, so, so proud. And uh, today's a very special episode because today was actually a dream come true. We got together. And I'll say a little bit more about that at the end. And also I'll announce the winner at the end uh, of this episode who who is going to be coming on as a guest on the show, who's been a listener, who shared their story online. And it was so hard to actually pick the right person, not even just the right person, but pick pick the story uh, because so many great stories were being shared. That, uh, But that this particular story really resonated with me, really kind of struck a chord. And, and I invited her to come over on the show. So I'll announce that at the end of the show. And in the meantime, it was a special occasion because I got to finally make a dream come true which was to have a live audience inside a studio with guests record it and be able to broadcast to people and and i've got to tell you hand to heart there, there's a few moments in life when you ha- are super clear about something and if there's one thing i'm really clear about is that one of my one of my big dreams one of my big goals is to be a tv host is to be an interview host like that is to have it either on youtube or on tv i don't know how and just to sit down and and share people's stories and broadcast those stories because it's it, it i can't tell you how it, it every inch of my body every cell of my body is just fired up and it just knows that that's what i'm meant to do because i love it and it's needed and uh, and i enjoy it so so thank you so much for if you came really appreciate you and if you missed out, I'm really sorry. We'll hopefully do another uh, live event. And so I won't go into this too much because I get into it a bit more into the actual live recording. But the the two guests that came on, one of them is my my friend, Olivier Thomas, who's the founder and CEO of GenSmart, who recently became a dad. So big shout out to him and to Elena for having a beautiful, beautiful boy. Can't wait to meet him because you'll talk a bit more about that during, during the interview. You'll, you'll see just a little spoiler alert. And uh, we really talked about uh, the importance of health optimization, longevity, as well as data protection. Data protection. So it was like a really interesting uh, conversation, actually. And then uh, you also hear a classic of this uh, show, David Baker, who's probably one of the biggest fan favorites ever. Like he's the only person that's come back three times on the show because people keep on asking for him. And you know, we talked about the concept of bullshit jobs, and you know, will robots take our jobs, and what skills we need to to develop in the in, in the future, and and will we ever be able to retire? Right, like the death of retirement. So we talked a bit more about all those things and, and many, many, many more. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I give you episode number 100 live from White City Place. Huge, huge, huge shout out to the whole crew at White City Place for allowing us to record over there and giving us a perfect setup. So ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Episode 100 live from London. So today I'm really honored and proud to, to, to have two people come on. Um, Thomas Olivier is going to be the first guest coming tonight, and he's the founder of GenSmart, and he'll talk a bit more about that. But it's a health tech startup that just came runner-up in Vienna, Vienna uh, startup out of 2,500 startups. Thomas' startup was selected, and it's, what he's doing is truly incredible, and we're going to talk about the genes of the DNA. So if you could please give me a warm welcome and join me to welcome Thomas on stage, I'd really appreciate that. Thank you. So, Tomas, first of all, thank you so much for agreeing. This is like a week ago, we were having a barbecue, yes. and, uh, <laughs> and I looked at Tomas and I said, hey, it'd be so cool to talk about your business on, on, on the live event. So, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank I you really for having that. me here, and thank you for you to be here. Yeah. <laughs> so, here's, here's something that I didn't know uh, that Tomas um, told me. Uh, who's here is afraid of public speaking? Raise your hand. 
Like, if you like, if the idea of going on stage and talking to like a thousand people would be like the worst thing ever, like raise your hand. It's okay. And, okay, cool. So it turns out there may be a gene related to that that might explain why you're actually afraid of public speaking. Is that right? Yeah. That's yeah. why. It would be the combination of a few, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, cool. So tell us about a bit more about, um, so you're into looking at uh, the DNA uh, mm -hmm. composition and, and genetics, and you're trying to make sense of how that can inform better decisions in terms of what we eat and how we move. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what we're trying to achieve really is to, to create this platform where you could have your digital representation of yourself. Um, we start with DNA, but we actually uh, want to expand a lot more. Um, but DNA, why? Because we are, you know, I mean, you just have to look in this room, we're all 99.9 .9 different. Uh, uh, I mean, similar, sorry, but 0.1% uh, are the same. But the 0.1% is actually uh, up to 4 million different genes. So this is to give you a picture of how big that is. Um, <laughs> Everyone's like, 4 million genes? Is yeah, like so how, how big are we talking about? Like, if you, if well, you had to make it like a conceptual <laughs> representation of that so people can get it. Uh, for, for for you to to understand, like um, maybe maybe the good way of understanding this is um, uh, at the cellular level, the, the the number of cells you have on each body. If if I throw that in the sky, right, um, you will have more. Uh, cells that you will have uh, stars in the whole universe, uh, but also in each and every single cell of, uh, of this, you have six foot tall of DNA. So who is about six foot tall here? Who's six foot tall? C can you stand up? Do you right? standing up? So you have, have you have thirty-two trillion uh, of this um, size here, <laughs> right? So that's quite huge. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of genes. That's a lot that's of genes. Lot of genes yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's it's enough to go to the moon and back twice. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's been amazing. I don't know if anybody here has kind of uh, heard like there's been this big race against understanding mm. our genomics, you know, and, and you look at 23andMe and you look at yep. all these kind of different companies that have come up. And then, um, and then you decided to launch GenSmart. Yeah. yeah. yeah so what, what, was, what was the idea behind like GenSmart? Well, the, the, the first idea behind GenSmart, um, first, as you said, is, is, you know, is this race of, you know, getting your, your own data, um, I mean, your genetic data. And the thing is, it's the, the, the cost of sequencing your genome which is the, the composition of all your genes, uh, has dropped 100 million times, right? Um, to give you another example, it's, it's like you're filling up your car in 98 of petrol or gas, um, and, and then you, you wait a bit until now, and you can go to the moon and back twice. Um, so that means that now we can have access to all those data um, and try to make sense of it. And, and the reason why I've created GenSmart is, is because we collect a lot of data, uh, but nobody really help you to make sense of those data. So there's a lot of company that you can actually make your, uh, have your DNA tested and you will get the result. By the way, just a second. Anybody here has done the DNA testing? Anybody done experiment? Yeah, hands up. Cool. Yeah. Um, so what, what Tom was talking about is that you, you can now, and actually GenSmart does it now as well, but you can actually uh, order a pack, like this like little kind of pack that comes and you swab some saliva, send it to a lab and then you wait you know, a little while, and then they send back some information about basically what you're made of. Now, there was yeah. a bit of an awkward, embarrassing moment when that happened, is that I realized that I was actually 62% British and Irish, <laughs> and uh, uh, only 20% <coughs> French kind of German. And so I had to have a conversation with my mother about this. And I said, yeah. mother, the, I thought dad was French, and you know, you're, you're British, so is, is there an adult conversation we need to have? Yeah. Well, two things happened. First, there's no way that I don't, that I'm not my dad's son, if you saw my dad. You can ask my partner and the spitting image of him. Second of all, it turns out because his family were from the north, genetically speaking, a lot of people from the north of France had Celtic roots and, and, yeah. and British origins. So that was fascinating. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the same for me, actually, because I'm, I'm also coming from the same area as, uh, as Mark. 
and uh, yeah, it's quite fascinating. I mean, the the the, the heri heredity of the yeah, yeah. I'm cool. actually more German than French. Sorry yeah. to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I love you, honey. Um, right. So yeah, so sorry. So and then and then you had this idea of, of basically because you talk about data, right? And I know that yeah. this is something that's really important. Uh, anybody received any emails about GDPR? Oh, Does that something there? Anybody <laughs> like? Don't we love them all? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's an important. Yes. We're talking about an important issue, right? We're talking about uh, like data protection and actually ownership. And, and David, this is something that we've talked about before in the past, and something that you, I know that you believe we'll talk about. But um, there's a fascinating twist that you want to tell people about what you can do with your mm. own data and how we should actually yeah. be owning our data. Well, the thing is, you know, your own data, um, big corporations have been using them for decades already. Um, but now it's time to regain ownership of your data and the genetic uh, and the whole genome and genomic in general and all your health data um, should be used for you to be empowered on how to optimize your health because um, we, we are dying of preventable diseases. Billions of people, uh, one out of four people in the UK died of diseases that are totally preventable by changing your lifestyle, your diet and your environment. And this is what the genetic story tells us is actually give you certain predisposition to, to certain um, diseases. But what we understand is it's not because you have a predisposition that you will actually develop the <laughs> disease so associated this, to yeah, it. Yeah, I love what you say because one of the things I learned about Thomas is that um, technically Thomas is meant to be a beast. <laughs> right, and so, no, but I, like, and he'll tell you a bit more about that. But you were actually yeah. a national champion in France of swimming when you were fifteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and tell us a bit more about what does that mean when you say about like it's not because you have a certain gene that it means that it will certainly uh, express itself. Yeah, well, it, it's it's all about your lifestyle and environment. So you will have uh, predisposition to certain things, but it's actually um, what the inputs, right, that you will put in this in those cells um, that will actually give you the results um, and the idea here is to understand what makes you you know different from someone else and what, what are your predisposition and what can you do to actually alter this expression of those genes to actually work optimally and to avoid those diseases to happen so yeah those, those uh, genes you, you talked about is certain genes like FTO and MC4R which are which are genes basically, um, I'm a bit of a gluten, right? Uh, and I have these genes. You've got the Labrador gene. The Labrador genes, let's, let's say that. And on top of that, I have other genes like inflammation related. So basically, if I start, uh, if I'm not doing much sport and, and, and I'm, I'm someone who's going to eat a lot more than calorie than he should be doing. So I've sort of hacked this by swimming a lot back in the days, uh, but I still do that. Um, but now, obviously, because I've changed all this because of my muscle memory and all these things that comes into consideration, I don't have this problem. However, if as a child I would have been a bit inactive, um, ate a lot of sugar uh, after school or, you know, uh, sugary drink, my, my insulin, which is one of those genes related to that, will spike all the time. I could have been uh, in serious complication, type 2 diabetes, obesity. So, so why is it important that people in this room... Uh, pay attention to what the genetic makeup is? Uh, it is to regain control of your health. I mean, we, we've passed the time now where we should be passive um, because the healthcare system in place is amazing if you get run over by a car and there's an amazing doctor that will save your life. Um, but it's true. But uh, And also if you have some infection um, because it's all based on infection. But we've we passed this time where we we you know uh, actually cure those infections. Now the, the the pandemic is 
um, lifestyle behavior diseases. Um, and, and this needs to be learned, uh, and it starts with us as proactive uh, and educated individuals. And actually what I found is, uh, and with GenSmart as well, as soon as you have this relationship with your own genetic, you understand, and a lot of things will dot with stay connected, you know, you, you will do things, oh, why? Wow, this is why I'm, I've got the death to buffet syndrome, because of this. <laughs> I, think what everyone's uh, <laughs> trying to th I think everyone's thinking in the room is like, I really hope I've got the lazy genes so I can get away at home yeah, and yeah. tell my partner, I swear, I swear, honey, this is not my fault, it's my genes. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, you, you, you do need to, to have a look. And once you, you, you create this relationship uh, with a, your, your biology, sorry, um, you cannot escape it. And, and you start to see the changes as well happening in terms of m you avoid all those guesswork. Uh, you don't have to follow the latest trend and fat diets. Um, that's such a problem, though, isn't it? It's yeah. like, I don't know if everybody everybody feels it but it feels like every day there's a new like fad or there's a new oh do the intermittent <coughs> fasting do the keto diet the vegan don't yeah. eat meat eat meat don't eat fat eat fat it's like it's so overwhelming in terms mm. of information for people like if, if you could speak to everyone here in the room tonight around that problem of like information overload and I just don't know what to do. What would you want to tell them? Well, that's, again, we're all different and, and certain diets will work for someone but not works for someone else. And this is the whole problem of, you know, why people get results and, and others don't. Uh, but more importantly, some people can get even sick by doing certain type of diet. So veganism is not for everybody. Um, I mean, plant-based diet, yes, will make you healthier, uh, but only uh, eating plants for certain people the way they will absorb certain uh, substances, fats that related to that will actually be creating more inflammation and, and can lead to problems. Yeah, that, that uh, just like over over diets, right? Yeah, so. that was such. A, so just just to kind of a bit background information for everyone, um, I went to, and joined Thomas's. Uh, uh, academy, uh, GenSmart Academy, like weekend, where basically they kind of take you through your genetic makeup and so forth. And that was like a fascinating thing that I really got away from it was that like, even if ethically you want to be vegan or plant-based, actually <coughs> genetically speaking, you may not be predisposed as best as possible to process mm. and get the nutrients uh, from, from the uh, vegetables. And also, anybody here is on the Bulletproof diet? Anybody heard of the Bulletproof diet? Yeah, cool. That's but that's another thing. Like yeah. some people shouldn't be on the bulletproof diet because yeah, of their genes. That's my case. So, yeah. um, so bulletproof diet for for those who don't know, really, it's um, uh, high fat and and high protein. Uh, but the idea is also to have the bulletproof coffee with a lot of um, high fat, which is actually really good in terms of um, energy and and if you fast and all these things. So you can lose weight, but over time, the certain genes that um, like ApoE genes, which is a, gene specific to cholesterol and and how you transport the fat i do have this variation that makes it difficult for my body to assimilate all those things if i have a bulletproof coffee you know every week uh, i mean sorry every day for six weeks uh, my cholesterol will be to the roof my blood pressure will be very high and i could go into certain complications so it's not for everyone um, but yeah, but this is like everything is. Yeah, and 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 we're coming to the close of the conversation. We'll get you back at the end with a Q and A <coughs> with David and have that conversation. The three of us. Um, but one of the things that if 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 it comes down to like okay, so let's say we all take the test, right? We will go to GenSmart. Mm -hmm. uh, dot me is it? Just trying to plug it here. Just yeah. okay, cool. um, you know, order the order the test kit. We get the test kit, and then we get the information because that's something that can also, you know, I've done that. 
like twice, I think, over the last five years. So I get this information. It feels almost overwhelming, right? So you you basically get like, oh, also just an FYI, like when you do certain tests, they ask you, do you want to find out about your predisposition of like cancerous genes and stuff? And so, you know, an Alzheimer's onset yeah. and so forth. So it can be quite, quite full on. But what would you want to tell the people who are thinking like, I've got my information out, now what? What do I do? Yeah, so... First thing I like to say is, is again, your, your genes are not your fate. Um, and it's actually your lifestyle, your diet, and, and your environment that you create around you that will dictate the results. Um, and what I would say is the, the, the important thing is not what is in black and white here, is what you do on a daily basis. So learning the, the mini habits, I would say, in the GenSmart platform, we call them the life hacks, that are personalized to you, that you can implement uh, bit by bit, but it's one at a time over time. We, we don't give everything in one go. Uh, for you to create a bit of a, around that and create an environment that is favorable to optimize your health and, and longevity. Um, yeah, but that's the important bit is, cool. is to see this as a as your own health journey to be involved in that because we're way too passive, uh, and the statistics are quite yeah. quite alarming. And you're going to become a dad soon. Yes, yes. How do you feel about that? Well, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thought I'd throw your script a bit yes. there. Yes. Uh, like unfortunately, I have a sleep deprivation gene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, uh, the best excuse yeah. ever. It's like, can't do the nights tonight, sweetie. You know my gene, right? I've got the predisposition. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be managing that. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, awesome. Though. And, and also, I just want to say a big congratulations on, on your pitch that you did. And, uh, you know, because I remember Thank back you. in the day when we spoke, public speaking wasn't something that you loved or looked forward no, to. No, no, no. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, actually, Thomas, just for this event, I think, was it the first time you put your face on the Insta stories and, you, and when, you, when you were kind of promoting the yeah, event? Yeah, actually, I did. Yeah. So for the first time, so we get a round of applause for Thomas to put his face <laughs> on Insta stories. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, had, I had my, uh, yeah, I definitely had my, uh, in Vienna, I had to do this in front of 500 people. It was quite a bit. Yeah, and you yeah. got grilled. Yeah, so when you went yeah. to like the I mean, yeah, it was it was first uh, and the, the 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 second event was sort of uh, it's called uh, not grilled but uh, roasted, and uh, it's, <laughs> it's quite similar. And basically, it's like if there's a comedian and there's like the the, the investors, but they're trying to make fun of you. And yeah, uh, but it was a very good experience actually. Do you want to share the story? What was the first thing that you know, the investor said? Oh God, not another. Yeah, not another millennia um, business. And, and I, I was like, look at me, like, you know, if I'm a millennia, obviously it was working, yeah. <laughs> so I yeah, get confidence like, after yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, if you think I'm a millennia, obviously this is working. <laughs> thank you so much, Thomas. Please round of applause for Thomas, please. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. I'll get you back on stage. So, next up um, is a guest that's very special, actually, because uh, he has now beaten all world records when it comes down to the Unconventionalist podcast. Uh, this will be the third appearance of the one and only David Baker, who's been an absolute joy and pleasure to interview over the last two years, I think, when we started first. And here's a little, a little story. Um, when I gave my TEDx talk, did I mention I gave a TEDx talk? Um, so before you start the show, you line up with all the different speakers and you wait patiently and they open up the doors. And everybody starts pouring in. And I'm sitting there kind of like, pretending like I'm not nervous, totally nervous. And this girl stops me and she kind of goes, are you Mark LaRoost? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. <laughs> uh, she's like, oh my God, I, I listened to your podcast and you're the reason why I'm here. 
was like, what, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, I heard that you were coming uh, to Cardiff to, to, to the TEDx, so I thought I'd come. I was like, oh, amazing. And I, I always love it when people do that. It never happens, but I love it when it does. And I told him, I said, oh, what's, what's your favorite episode? He's like, oh, that guy about the future of work. David, like David Baker. And that happens all the time. Like every time I meet someone who enjoys the show, they always go, I could listen to David for, for hours and end. And, and David's got a, a, an incredible background. We won't have too much time to go into it. We've got two episodes where we really dive into it. But effectively, David was the launch managing editor of Wide UK magazine. Anybody reads Wide magazine or, or knows about Wide magazine? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal magazine. Um, also spent uh, over a decade as a journalist at the FT, Financial Times, and uh, is also a regular broadcaster on BBC4. And we'll talk a bit more about one of the latest reports that he's done, and is also a lecturer at the School of Life. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Baker to the stage. Okay, so I have instructions today to make sure that I have the right points for David. So I will try and do my best. But David, so good to see you again. Great to see you, Mark. Thank um, you very much for the invitation. Yeah, Pleasure not, to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're not on the couch today. We're not on the, the no, couch. No, we had, and we also had headphones with microphones on. Oh, I yes. had two fighter pilots yeah. sitting on a couch <laughs> last time. It was cool. Like, we should bring those back, I yeah, think. You know, 100%, easier, yeah, 100%. Easier. And thank you for making me look bad. You look beautiful in your well, suit. I, I, there was going to be a camera. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding? But actually, a friend of mine's here, uh, two friends of mine here, whose um, wedding was quite a long time ago. When was that? You guys, Simeon Henry, 2009, and I was wearing the same suit at their wedding. So unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately that's, that's the suit, you know. <laughs> no, no, and I'm really grateful that you, you accepted to come here tonight and share your wealth of wisdom and, and, and wisdom, wisdom. Um, but there's something every time I sit down with you. So I've got a, I've got a little kind of backstory. Last time we spoke, um, I didn't sleep for like two days. And that's because we talked about the future of work and specifically about AI and robots. And uh, But before we get into that, I know that there's something that's quite close to your heart. And a lot of people here uh, as well, especially if you listen to the show, and that is to do work you love. And there's something about we all doing bullshit jobs. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean, some people will know this phrase already because uh, the guy who coined it has just produced a book called, I think, Bullshit Jobs. But okay. uh, he's, a guy called, he's a guy called David Graeber, who I met uh, two or three years ago. He's an anthropology lecturer at uh, the LSE, I think, and um, or, or King's. And uh, he wrote a very good essay in a very, very tiny, very left-wing newspaper, which no one read, called On the Phenomenon of Bullshit Jobs. And, <laughs> and he made a very good point, which really resonated with me. I mean, I need to lay my cards on the table. I think most of us work wrongly. And I think it's damaging our health, Thomas, and I think it's damaging our society. And I think we've got work wrong. And I think the fault of that is the factories in the Industrial Revolution. And his argument was that most of us most of the time are doing things which don't produce anything and which don't give us any satisfaction and which are not playing to our strengths. And he called these bullshit jobs. And so, th so the example he gave was, for example, many of us who work in offices um, spend a lot of time maybe making a spreadsheet, which then becomes a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and then we give that at a meeting and those people at the meeting take some notes, which then becomes a report, which is then put into another PowerPoint and back into a spreadsheet. And all of this just round and round and round. And that's a very good description. Anybody been through that? Anybody through that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, clerical work in action. And his example was that actually we're not very good at spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations and meetings and they're boring. And, and we weren't employed to do that. We were employed because we had a particular skill or a particular insight. And his example of that is he said he himself uh, is an anthropology lecturer. And he says in the essay, I'm good at teaching anthropology. But I spend most of my time filling in uh, forms for grant applications or student numbers or whatever. And he said it's like employing a load of very good carpenters and asking them to cook fish. 
and he said there's a, there's a double negative here because you end up with a load of awful fish which no one really wants to eat and the carpenters never get to express do, their, do their craft and I think most of work especially in our developed world is like that and I think we've got an opportunity to change that. And actually what you mentioned, technology and AI, I think could give us an opportunity to make, make the world better. Yeah, and I remember there was a um, conversation that we had, we were kind of both saying, you know, we're, we're in a very comfortable situation here. You know, we were both in North London at the time, you know, having a, a casual Tuesday conversation. And, and you know, for some people, it's, it's, it's a reality. Like, you know, not everybody... Actually, this is a question. Do you think everybody can afford to ask themselves the question, am I doing a bullshit job or not? Well, I think everybody needs to ask themselves that question. Whether they can actually do anything about it is a different matter. And that's, <laughs> and that's the problem because it, there's a kind of nexus, isn't there, about work, money, and status or society, about what happens when we think about our work. I mean, it's very telling that even if we, in this room, I'm sure we think we're kind of cool people, very quickly we end up telling someone about the work we do. It's part of our identity. It's part of how we feel and we might, fi might find a purpose in life. It's part of how we get things like creativity and teamwork. And so when we meet strangers, for example, we tend to go, you know, what do you do? You know, and that's, that's we start with that question. point. That's always the first, like, like, what do you do? So it's interesting yeah. to ask why it is the first question. Yeah. You know, so on the one hand, it's kind of an easy question. There's an easy answer. But there's a kind of limitation about the question, obviously, because it puts that person or puts us in a box, which is something like, the way I earn my money is the primary part of my identity. Mm. And I think we've kind of gone wrong there, actually. I mean, now some people, and don't get me wrong, there are, there are probably plenty of people here who feel that, love that question, they love their job, it gives them great pleasure, it gives them great joy. I mean, Thomas and I had a conversation about that just then, and he loves his job and is delighted to be known for his work. Other people may be less so, and the trouble with that question is it, it kind of blinds us to other aspects of the person. It'd be quite nice to hear whether the person, for example, is empathic, or a good listener, or kind, or curious, these words. And this is something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently because these words kind of get downgrade kind of get downgraded in it's the too world soft or it's not it's not important well we it's use like, the yeah. word soft you see so actually the, at the school of life we've been looking at this a lot recently because we've been looking at this idea of emotional intelligence now i'll put my cards on the table i don't really like this phrase because it's kind of eq iq that kind of feel but it's playing a bit into the to the paradigm but Basically, emotional intelligence are things that we usually call something like soft skills. And if you think about the world of work, that when money is rolling in, when there's a boom going on rather than a recession, companies do loads of training in these things like, you know, listening, uh, ideas we, we've, been, we've been told that we need to create some culture. Absolutely, yeah, 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 exactly that. You yeah. know, let's, let's have a compassion juggling workshop or something like <laughs> yeah. that. You know. um, and as soon as the money goes, those courses completely disappear. And the courses that get preserved are things like strategic management or uh, spreadsheets. Spreadsheets. <laughs> spreadsheets. You know, has to do a PowerPoint. Um, budgeting, uh, project planning, you know, the Gantt chart and everything like that. And in a way, we've ended up in a culture where those things, project planning, Gantt chart, whatever, is seen as hard skills, and we call the others soft skills. And I think, I'll, I really do think this, I think there's quite a lot of misogyny going on here, actually, because I think the first ones are associated with men, and the other is associated with women. And in the corporate world, I'm speaking in the Anglo-Saxon corporate world, and probably, I think, probably in the European corporate world as well, those skills have a, a hierarchy about them. That, you know, strategic thinking is up here, listening is down there, and I think men are up here and women are down there, and that's a kind of a cultural attitude that corporate life has ingrained in it and needs to be challenged. Uh, please. Yeah, no, I was going to say, because it's the... Um and I love what you're saying, and there's, there's a point I just wanted to come back to just before we go deeper into that, and that is, if asking what do you do is perhaps not the best question we should ask, 
What would be the question that you would like all of us to ask first? Well, I don't think there is a particular question, but I need to tell a story about this. Because I made a radio, radio program, which is uh, for the World Service, about this question, what do we do? And by chance, because I hadn't, it was a coincidence that I taught at the School of Life, we met two people who had met at a class at the School of Life. For, for, for anybody who doesn't know, this School of Life is a place in central London, Russell Square, where, uh, which the philosopher Alan de Botton set up to help us think about emotional intelligence about these ideas and we had a class at the school of life uh, a long time ago called how to have a good conversation and i've taught it a couple of times and they by chance went on this class and one of the instructions was you're not allowed to ask anyone you meet at this class what do you do so you've got to to, to stop that so no to, one talks so <laughs> you had to think of a different way of speaking to them now on the program we had two people who met that night a man and a woman who met that night and afterwards they went out and had a drink with each other and then they started dating oh, wow. and for eight months they didn't ask each other what do you no. do and when when we met them it was four years in and i have to say mark i've never seen two people so in love in my life they came into the bbc studio you've never seen me and my girlfriend well no we haven't i'm sorry you know it's like you know is she here well, we're going to have to see. Anyway, they came into the studio at the BBC uh, holding hands. They've been together for four years. They were so connected with each other, so respectful and so into each other. And they told this story about those eight months were kind of wonderful because they kept on having to ask what you've just asked. What is the question I can ask rather than saying, what do you do? And so they found out, as they said, so much profundity about people about each other you know uh, i mean it sounds extraordinary but, you know what do, what are you worried about you know what do you fear what are you excited about in the future you know what are you curious about at the moment um i think it, the short answer to your question is hairdressers get it right because they they are already always having these conversations and they usually go something like have you been on holiday recently because that's a uh, great question yeah. because then you can say oh god yeah i was in ibiza yeah. or no but i'm hoping to go to yeah. x and th that gets into because the next question is like, why ibiza and then you go, oh, well, you know, I feel like maybe going raving. And then, you, and then sure. you know, are you, do you usually rave and go, well, I used to. And now you've got an interesting conversation about their life, yeah. well away from their job. So there's a question I've asked you pretty much every interview, and, and, and you kind of, let's, let's dive into that. And it is, um, you know, you asked about, what are you excited about? And there's this question I always ask you is like, are you excited or are you fearful about the future? Especially when we talk about AI and robots coming. Oh, okay, well, I'm very excited about the future, uh, e even with work and AI. I know there's a lot of dread coming up. Um, I think there'll be a lot of problems. I think there'll be a lot of challenges to us because it'll shake us out of something that we're used to, which is we go to university, we have a career which sort of goes up in steps and we get promoted and promoted. And then at 60, 65 or whatever, we pop out the other end you know, with a cuckoo clock and a party and <laughs> off we go and then whatever retirement is. And I think AI and robotics especially are going to, I hate using the word, I was going to try and not use it, disrupt. It's a, you it's, said it, David. I said it. And it's actually a, a word we banned now in Wired. We've used it so often, you know. But I think AI and robotics is going to upset that model in a very big way. And I think it's going to be in a good way. So I'm quite excited. Now, the downside of this will be we'll all have to think a lot harder about what we do for work and about what work means for us. And you and I, when we first met, we had this conversation that, and I'll say this again because we talked about the lazy gene. I actually think the word lazy is a very loaded word. I don't think, oh, well, I'll say it about myself. I don't much like work. And I actually think loads of us work too much. Yeah. And I, I don't mean necessarily the hours, although I absolutely think almost everyone who has maybe an office job in London 
is working too long hours. I started re reading Willing Slave, by the way. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. If I really recommend it. Anybody's interested in, in what David's talking about, right? there's a great book called Willing Slave by... Yeah, there I you go. You were David, ask me that, come on! Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, Madeline Bunting. Madeline Bunting. There Bunting, you go. Yeah. But it's, it talks about that. It mm. talks about the, uh, the generation overworked and how we put in mm. too much. So sorry, you, you, well, you were because, well, because there's a cultural thing. So you know, if you imagine when we get a job, we we sign on a contract, and it says it says usually something like uh, nine thirty to five thirty, an hour for lunch, five days a week. And I, I can't do the sum, but that's about forty-five or something days. And um, then, but the, if you actually followed those hours rigorously then we get that really english sarcastic thing like you know you, you're getting you're going home at 5 30 like, uh, half day then you know that way people <laughs> sneer at the office so what we end up with is with people then creating work for themselves just to stay a bit later yeah. stay a bit later and then we, you look at certain sectors law is one of them in the city where um there's it's a coolness to still be there at 11 o'clock at night now yeah. i think it's completely uncool if your job is keeping you in the office till 11 o'clock at night. Because I think what's happened is you've, you're probably not working efficiently or you've taken on too much work and you need to bounce that back or you haven't got the rest of what's happened to the rest of your life. Yeah, you know, what's happened to your love life? What's happened to the relationships? relationships? What's happened to having fun? What's happened to uh, exploring the world, being curious about the world, to discovering new things? So I think, I know you're desperate to bust yeah, in, but I'm not going to oh, let you. so much. Every the, time the, I said but, it, I was like, oh, my God, wait, but, wait. But I think, and Thomas and I had a, a quick chat about this, I think we should go in the opposite direction. I think we should say, can I reduce the number of hours I work in the week? And I think to about three days. Now, I'll say this, I've tried to do this myself, and I, I kind of average about three days. And the, obviously that Im implies I'm going to earn less money. That's absolutely the truth of this matter. And therefore, you have to say, well, I'm going to spend less money. And actually, we all know, however skint we feel, we can definitely exist on less money. If all of us in this room... But the more you, the more you earn and the more you spend, and I mean, I've seen this when I used to, when I used to have a, a job, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> before fun employment kicked in. Um, but yeah, and every time you had a promotion, you earn more, and suddenly you're just spending more, and mm. it's like it just never ends. And I've got friends who are making lots more money than me, and they're complaining. They're, mm. like, they're on six figures, and they're all complaining about how they're still not making enough. Yeah, I have a friend who, who came back from New York, uh, I think it was last year, and he'd been, he used to work in New York, and he he said he met a friend of his there who described himself as poor. He literally used the word, I am poor. This man has a brownstone in the Upper East Side of Manhattan and one of those beach houses, you know, on Long Island or wherever <laughs> it is out there, you know. But he hangs out with people that have a brownstone on the Upper East Side, a beach house and a yacht. So go. for him, he's at the bottom of that pile. He's comparing himself with them, so he's poor. If we, uh, again, let's go back to School of Life, we have a class about sort of the psychology of money, or we used to anyway. And uh, one of the little exercises was to ask the room, where on a scale of naught to 10 in the distribution of incomes in the United Kingdom you is your yeah. income? Almost ever, it's worth just imagining this in your minds now. So, you know, I'm saying zero is the bottom, 10 is the top of incomes in the United Kingdom. Where is your income? And so almost let's, everyone- Let's pause for a second. Okay. Everybody here, right? Have a think about it, right? Naught to 10. Where do you think you stand on the scale of income? Is that is, yeah, is, yeah. Your, your household income? Yeah. yeah, cool. What's the next exercise? Okay, so then everybody gives themselves a, everyone gives themselves about you know seven ish, seven and a half, eight, something like that. You know, you know, we're middle class people at the school of life. You know, it's that kind of demographic, if you like. The truth is, almost everyone in the room is at about nine point eight. I, I would actually scale. challenge. I would actually. I would imagine more people being five, six. Okay, well let's that. see. Now we now yeah. we're giving the numbers away. Who, yeah, yeah. So so so, who, so so four. 
four below. Yeah, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Yeah, it's going to spoil the exercise. Yeah. I gave the answers away, okay. before, didn't I? Yeah. but the, the thing is, we don't. I'm, I'm trying to make a kind of moral point, I guess, actually, that we, even though all of us, and I have absolute compassion for people who feel short of money, uh, if we lost our jobs tomorrow, we would still survive. You know, we might have to live in a smaller house, or we might have to live in a different town, or we might not be able to buy this and or eat this, but we would still live. And I think that's kind of where we might approach this problem about working too long hours. Because, first of all, there may be people who actually are totally happy with the hours they're working. And I would say, great, good on you. But I suspect we're more interested in people who say, I'm really unhappy with the hours I'm working. I seem to be exhausted when I come home from the office or work at 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. And then you need to say to them, okay, well, what does work give you and can you find that somewhere else in non-work life? Can I just speak to that for a second? Because it's really interesting, right? So there's this thing or so that I think you're speaking to and that we're kind of going around and that's sometimes it's like a cultural thing, right? So like you talk about people and we had a conversation with my partner and someone else the other day who was basically telling us about how her boss had landed this huge project that she had to do. And she couldn't physically figure out how she could fit that in with amongst all her different activities that she had to do, right? And she, she was a trained doctor, and I think she's a psychologist and so forth. And we kept on telling her, well, you've got to go back and tell your, your, your boss that this is not okay, and if they, if they want you to do this, then you're going to have to sacrifice something else. And she was so adamant that that is impossible. You cannot say that I will be banished from my entire medical community. You know, I will never get a job again. I mean, it's so visceral mm. that I almost want to ask you like, in those kind of companies with such an ingrained culture around the more you put in, i.e. the more you look like you're putting in, the more reward rewarded you will be, the more appreciated you will be. What, what would you like to tell them, if anything? It may be a tip about what they could do. Okay, well, first of all, I actually don't believe the company is really like that. I think much of that company culture is in our imagination as workers in those kind of companies. There are companies like that. I mean, there's a very good novel called The Circle by David Eggers, which is basically about Google. And I imagine it might be a bit like that at Google, but I've, I've not got experience with Google. Um, but I actually think quite a lot of the time, it's very interesting that she said, oh, it's impossible. I cannot say that to yeah. him. Obviously, it's not impossible. You can say that. Now, she might lose her job. As you say, she might be, what was it, thrown out by the whole medical I mean, was, community yeah, or something. You know? yeah. but, the, but your key word here is visceral. And this is why I think it's time for us to look at these skills that where we started, this idea of soft skills, to use the, the cultural word, these emotional skills we have. Because when we say something is visceral, we're not really rationalizing the, the chances of this or that happening. We have a feeling which is informing our decision. In her case, her decision not to tell the boss she couldn't do this, and presumably with the result that she's now working all night in, and getting exhausted. You know, So uh, what you might say is that she needs to build a certain skill which would be something to do with confidence, uh, resilience, communication, um, not catastrophizing. You know, the, one of the big things we do in our mind when we think about, oh my goodness, I'm going to go and talk to my boss, is we can imagine absolutely the worst outcome, yeah. which it seems to be what she did. So actually, the skills might not be anything to do with her boss or her or the, the hours at work. It might be, could this person develop a greater skill in confident assertiveness and less catastrophizing, for example. Now, what might happen then is her visceral feeling might change. And she might be a lot more confident about going to the boss and saying, you know, I know you've given me this project and I'm pleased you've 
you, you give me that vote of confidence. But to be honest, looking at my workload at the moment, I'm not going to be able to do it, and I'm not going to be able to do it well. And actually, I'd rather you gave it to someone else. Now, that's, that's a conversation yeah. that all of us now are probably feeling crunched <laughs> stomachs and anxious. But the truth is, we know when we do have that conversation with a boss, suddenly we treat it with new respect. Mm. Now, some awful bosses and awful companies will sack you. And I want to say, Good for you. You've got out of that awful <laughs> boss and that awful company. There are other companies and there are other yeah. bosses. And as we'll look at, there's also self-employment. But I think that many people might find that when they have actually spoken to someone in that way, and it's beyond work as well, it may be in a relationship, for example, or with an annoying neighbour, uh, that they're yeah. actually they're then treated with greater respect and they're heard. And I think that's what I mean about developing emotional intelligence no, I, 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 in work. I love what you're talking about. And, and what you're talking about, there's this uh, concept around embracing difficult conversations and, 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 and celebrating conflict. And actually, my, my partner, uh, and, I, and I'm going to tell you, living with a partner who loves embracing difficult conversations and celebrates conflict is great. Um, but it's, and she's, she's actually running a workshop at The Guardian, uh, I think, uh, in, in a couple of months. But there's, it's, and it's fascinating because for her, it's like the best thing ever. Like she goes into teams and she wants to to get teams to kind of get all the gunk out, all the real stuff, and people are just terrified at the idea of, of, of conflict. If, if you could give a, a, a point of advice, like anybody here in the room is thinking, apart from going off obviously to, to Judy Light's workshop um, later on, but if you could give a point of advice to someone thinking, wow, you're right, David, I really need to have that conversation, but I don't know where to start, what would be like one tip you could give them? It's interesting, I, don't, I always, when someone says, can you give advice, I always go, no. You know, it's like, well, partly because, rather like Thomas's company, we're all different, and we need to yeah. come authentically from inside us. Mm. So the first, I was, I mean, my my feeling is that the first route to good emotional intelligence is is greater self knowledge. So probably the starting point is actually ignore that conversation for the moment. Start looking inside ourselves more about who am I? What's important to me? What's less important to me? What are my fears? What are my excitements? What are my joys? And one of the ways and many people do this really well, is actually start the day with about 10 minutes of, it's often called something like journaling or something, but just write anything for five minutes first thing in the morning or 10 minutes first thing in the morning. And what starts happening there, it doesn't really matter what you write, and you can even just put it in the bin afterwards. Um, what happens is that if you're just sort of writing and writing and writing and writing, maybe even just write with your eyes closed or something, you're what we might call our inner self or our unconscious starts talking to us. And we start realizing, actually, it's important to me uh, maybe in your friend's case, for the boss to like me. I daren't go and see him and say, I can't do this work because I like the fact that he likes me or whatever it might be. And 100%. so we discover things about ourselves. So I'd say step one is self-awareness. And obviously- Can I speak to that just yeah. for a second? Just, I just want to share, what I love what you're saying is, is there's this book called The Artist Way. Yeah. And, it, and it's basically that the idea is every morning you write three pages uninterrupted. And, and uh, if you've been listening to the show, then you know that this is something I've been doing lately. And what you say is so true. After about 40 days of just kind of regularly journaling, I started realizing that actually the reason why I was posting on social media and craving likes and all this stuff is because there was a part of me that I wasn't accepting. There was a part of me that I wasn't okay with. And so I was seeking that validation externally. And this sounds like deep shit, but it basically, <laughs> it, it, came, it was like this, the higher self, whatever you call it, but it was this amazing kind of unlocking the unconscious that brought clarity that I could only get through journaling. So I love that you actually spoke no, to that. I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, it is deep shit, but it's also deep gold, if you like. You know, we're discovering about ourselves the things that are important to us. Now, you know, whatever our religious feelings are, we're probably here for one bash at life. Yeah. You know, right now, the clock is ticking through our lives, as we know. You know, the, the, the future, who knows when the future comes, and I mean this in terms of our death. You know, I mean, the Stoic philosophers got this straight away. You know, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, they said often, you could walk out this 
well, this, this talk tonight and, God forbid, be knocked over by the 171 bus, you know, at Wood, Wood Lane or whatever like that. Now, if that happened and you were the lying on the, well, let's, let's make it personal. If that happened to me and I was lying, or us, we were lying on the grass, uh, lying on the road, and we had the last ticking away seconds of our life, would we be able to answer the question like, am I living the life I want to be living? Have I lived the life I want to live? Or have I lived the life that other people wanted me to live? I mean, this is very Socrates. This is, you know, Socrates asked us to always analyze our lives and, and say, what's important for me? What, am I, what do I really want to be doing? Because, and the Stoics pointed this out, that bus might come. For them, it was a roof slate. But, you know, that bus might come at any point. But <laughs> same, the, same. But the same thing, you know, they, a chariot, I guess. You know, so they, um, but they, they pointed out, you know, that actually, especially now in our modern world, and, you know, good for Thomas for helping protect us from this, death is very invisible to us. We're quite stunned. You know, it happened with Anthony Bourdain recently, that somebody dies. But we're all going to die. And it's grim to say, but we might actually die much sooner than we think we are. So really, if we've spent the whole of our life writing spreadsheets and doing PowerPoints and staying at 11 o'clock doing projects that we didn't feel we could do, is that really the good life? And in fact, somebody at a wedding once, I think we talked about this before, somebody at a wedding once uh, in Paris once said, um, uh, he, he gave us a little brain tease. He said, uh, if you, you, I want you to imagine you're, 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 di you're dead and it's your funeral. And someone could say uh, 10 words about you in the eulogy over your coffin, you're lying there, somebody else says these 10 words, what would you like those 10 words to be? And I'm pretty sure no one would go, she took on extra projects from her, her <laughs> boss and worked late at 11 o'clock and did some great spreadsheets. Some great spreadsheets or something, you know. And yeah. actually that's the, what I mean by emotional intelligence, actually, that when we look at the future of work, which actually will give us much more opportunity to think in these ways, I really think that much technology will take away the drudgery of work. It'll be doing the spreadsheets that we won't. We have an opportunity to go, you know what, what would I like somebody to say about my life? And you might say, what would I like someone to say about my work life? And it might be they worked less time, but all the work they did gave them joy or something like that. Do you fear death? Uh, no, I don't fear it. I mean, I think it's going to be awful because I'd rather like life. And I, I'm, I, I'm quite excited, you know, to be here, to be traveling, to meet new people. I'm very lucky in the job I do, which is as a journalist, I meet thrilling people all the time. But it's silly to fear death because it's a total certainty. Why worry about something that's a certainty? I hope it's not for a long time. Mm. But I will say sincerely that if, God forbid, the 171 or whatever, I don't, I'm not a West London person, I don't want the bus <laughs> through inside here, but whatever, whatever bus it is knocks me down. You know what, I, I would like to feel I'll, those last few seconds won't be with regret. Yeah. No, I love that, and and, and uh, we're coming to the to the end of uh, of this interview. And, uh, every time I sit down with David, I'm like, oh my god, I wish I had two more hours. And it's always the same thing. Um, there's this concept of the hundred year life. Yes, um, yes. That, that that we kind of we were talking mm. about uh, that you wanted to kind of bring, and I just want to make sure we had a bit of time for that. Sure. So some people will know this book. There's a there's a book by a woman called Linda Grant called The Hundred Year Life, and she's a uh, she's a proper person. She's not one of these gooky writers. She's <laughs> she's a professor of management strategy, I think, at London Business School. And she's pointing out, and I think Thomas probably would back us up here, that actually there's many people alive today who will live to the age of 100 and in quite good health. And as a result, uh, the, your career might take you into your 80s. And that's not unusual. Uh, that's not impossible now, but actually that's a rare thing now. We usually, certainly when I started work, there was this idea that you did a whole chunk of your life doing, being educated then a great chunk of your life from about whatever, 21 to 65 or whatever, 
working, and then 65 to X, um, uh, you know, in retirement. And we had these ideas of this three-phase life. And she says something very important here, that she says, actually, if we're going to work into our 80s and live to our 100s, we're going to have to abandon this three-phase program, that instead work is going to have to change, that it's nothing we learn in that first phase is going to take us through whatever it is, 60 years of work. And instead, so like we a, might... 100 is the new 60. Well, a hundred, yeah, a hundred, well, 100 is the new 60 in a bit or something <laughs> like that. But, the, but actually, what we might have to do is keep on changing the work we do and keep on going back into training and keep on going back into education. And that, for me, is the real opportunity here, actually, because I don't believe that it's right for us to do a single thing from the age of 21 to the age of 65. I do believe that most of us in this room, and I can't speak for anyone's finances, but I'm guessing this, will have to carry on working quite a long time after 65. I've just finished a BBC programme about this, and almost everyone we interviewed is now in their 70s, setting up entrepreneurial projects and things like that. And so long as we keep our health, that's the probably will be the thing that keeps us sane or keeps us interested in the world. But they're not going to be, we're not going to be doing the same thing as we did when we were 22. So education is going to have to change. Yeah. And to go back to this thing, which is always a spectrum of conversation, money is going to have to change. We're going to have to find a way of living more frugally. I think we're not, we've said goodbye to this idea that our money is going to constantly be on an upward plane until we die. It'll zigzag crazily. Yeah, I, I read somewhere that the millennials, us millennials again, um, are going to be one of the first generation to earn less than our, than our parents' generation. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I think it, perhaps even more acutely, the, the first generation, and I'm, now I'm going to include myself in the millennials, I mean, all of us working right now are kind of the first generation to have to expect big drops in our income during our work life. So whereas my father and certainly my grandfather would have expected a life which started lowish and just slowly went up and up and up and up and up to retirement, and then the challenge was how do you keep funding yourself through retirement, nowadays all of us in this room will have some year ahead of us where we will earn less than the previous year. The graph will go up, down, up, down. And we need to develop a, a kind of resilience and a psychology which will make that not feel like a total disaster. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to give a round of applause for David. Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Every time I say this, David, you know, it's like I could I could talk to you for hours, and and uh, and I know you you will be back on the show, David. <laughs> you just can't worry. Right. So I'm going to invite Thomas to come back on stage, and and you two can and take these chairs. So we're going to go to a Q and A in a second, but I just thought I'd get uh, <laughs> two people. I feel like I don't know. I'm nervous. Like the future of health and the future of work, and uh, the, the, yeah. We we just need the future of love. Yeah, there, there you go. I'm here. There we yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating both to spend some time with you. And I think that, that there's there's got to be a bridge, right, between the future of health and the future of work and how it's intertwined. And I think more and more companies now, especially, are looking at the well-being of their of their employees and this kind of like this idea of wellness. You know, is kind of coming into the company. And uh, and a question to you actually, Thomas, is around uh, AI, artificial intelligence. Because yeah. I remember that when you went for the pitching competition, that was a big aspect that you kind of went into to talk mm -hmm. about the future of health and especially in the genetic world. Tell us a bit more about that. So what? Yeah. In terms of artificial intelligence, which is a very broad uh, subject, right? But um, for me, the, the artificial intelligence is about um, creating, you know, someone, I mean, something 
uh, a lot more clever than us, but gathers all the data um, and makes more sense uh, and I can make decision. This is this is a crazy thing about it. You can make decision for us better than we would do. <laughs> and uh, if you can have this in sort of the background when it comes to your health, and, and and we go a bit futuristic, let's go for it. It's it's you know the future. But let's imagine like Google now and, and Amazon, they're doing all those connected uh, voice, um, you know, vo vocal uh, AI. Um, Everything could happen in your house. For example, um, your personalized supplementation strategy of the day is printing when you're still sleeping. Uh, where because I basically, uh, so, so I think what Thomas is speaking to is uh, what you're into is the optimizing the health yes. and lifestyle, right? So one of the things you could do, for example, is there's some wearable technology now that you can wear that monitors your sleep, your heart rate, your deep sleep, and mm. so that you wake up, you can have that on the app, and it could actually just print yeah. out saying, okay, you've slept this amount of hours, then you're going to mm. need a nap. And but also even more about, you know, your your your, your biometrics, or all the, you know, your heart rate, your everything that can be, you know, tr um, monitored. Um, your vitamins, your minerals, what do you need at this special moment, at this special time? And even Google now could look into your... Um, your your agenda. Oh, you've got a uh, a party tonight. It's uh, Mark's birthday. Uh, maybe you should have this sort of supplement and this sort because this will help your detoxification pathways to work better. <laughs> so then you can drink a bit more. I just uh, had a vision of having an argument with my partner. Like it looks like you need your vitamins. It's like <laughs> you need. <laughs> but but what I mean is everything. You know, there's different sides. You can have the Terminator scenario, and this is the whole thing that we, we fear, right? But at the same time, uh, I see AI anyway to, to improve our lives and, and, you know, give us more time to do the, to come back to what you were saying, to do the things we love uh, and, and spend more time with the people we, we love. Uh, and I think that's the important bit on how we should actually focus on, on developing all this artificial intelligence and... Yeah, and, and, and David, just talking about that, why, why are people afraid of AI? Why are people afraid of artificial, artificial intelligence? Well, I'm going to tell you why I'm afraid of that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm a bit concerned. I actually get what you're up to, and good, good for you, and I, yeah. I totally get this idea <laughs> this about... This is it, David's <laughs> out now. Sorry, Tobias, this is when we, were at, when we were at Wired, we talked about this quite a lot, actually, this idea, yeah. you know, there were Fitbits invented, and there was this idea yeah. of the kind of constant mon monitoring of our numbers. Um, my worry, and I think this is great, I, I'm absolutely sure that good health will come from your project, and good for that. The, I think there are two unanswered questions which AI, the AI world, doesn't really allow us to even contemplate. One is, um, why do we want to live longer and healthier? I know that sounds like such a blindingly obvious question, and it may well be, well, because X, Y, Z, duh. But actually, I suspect we actually haven't even thought that one through yet. You know, that I've been talking today with, about people in retirement, you know, who are now looking, you know, to live to 100 or whatever. I say that, do we really want to live to 120? Or I mean, I know there's meant it's, to be medical cutoff points. It's a good question, points. actually, because we, we were thinking about this. You know, we, we have a brainstorm with our developers, and and uh, we, we it's all about choice, right? So it's who you are, who you want to, to be, and what do you want to do? Um, and it's your life, after all, and you still have the free will of choice and has to be a very important um, you know element of it um, so you can actually have within those things you can actually choose if you want to do that or not and and that's very important it's just like you know sharing your data with the doctors you'll be able to do that but if you don't want to then don't do it it's, it's very important yeah. to have this aspect as well, I, I, think. I want to speak to that for a second because a few years ago I, I did a, a kind of a panel for Adobe and uh, and one of the uh, invitees was Dr. Uh, Turnbull, and, and she's kind of a genomic uh, specialist. And one of the things she was talking about was, was the potential threat, I guess, of, of data protection or not, is that some insurance might put a premium. Uh, 
hmm. on the fact that they can have access to your genetic details and like, oh, you're predisposed to a certain disease or chronic disease or, or, or cancer, something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I'm just curious to hear about like, what do you think people can, can do or to, to kind of protect themselves? It's, it's exactly this, uh, this point, actually. If you could opt in, just like you opt in to connect to the Wi-Fi or not, opt in to share this data, it's your data and you, you should get the ownership of it. And I think we're going with GP. GPR and I'm oh, sorry I'm dyslexic I have difficulty to yeah. say it GDPR it's a mouthful GDPR yeah, yeah. but you know um, it's, it's a good example that's coming toward you know we're going to, to towards that direction is you, you have to have the choice yeah the choice is yours like if you don't want to share then fine and you should we should agree on a level but then if you are proactive towards your health and if you are if you want to show it that you're proactive towards your health maybe you should get a discount uh, and be rewarded this way to for a premium you know yeah. life insurance which is cheaper because actually you, you're proving yeah, and, and uh, being a, proactive towards your health there are a few companies who do that and um and i'll get this out but david i know that you are particularly uh, are very uh, protective around data and uh, you were the first person that introduced the concept to me that we should be selling our information to companies and not the other way around. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and this has become quite common now, actually, this idea. And uh, certainly this year, there's going to be quite a lot of uh, little data bank accounts set up. I think little hats, I think they're called. But they, you know, certainly in Britain and in mainland Europe, there are some people setting up these ideas that what when we invented the internet, we weren't quite sure how uh, anyone was going to pay for it. They, partly, I think, because of a hideous pun. There was a kind of, uh, Thomas is way too young to remember this, but there's a, there's a, but back in the early days of the World Wide Web especially, there was this kind of mantra which just says, information should be free. And because it was in English, we had this sort of pun about free, as in free to move around, which was kind of the initial intention of that. But very quickly, it became free, i.e. I don't want to pay for it. Mm. And what happened was when the big corporations arose, or, or simply just corporations offering services, you know, email, um, no one wanted to pay for those. And so instead, they said, well, actually, it's generating quite a lot of data. We'll sell those datas to advertisers to meet those customers. And we know the result now, 30 years down the line, we've ended up with actually, in many sense, very unfree information, you know, sort mm -hmm. of about four or five big companies, in effect, having our data. Yeah. But I'm interested in this, because actually, the, the, the scandals, especially recently about Cambridge Analytica and yeah. Facebook, yeah. have led us to a place where we actually are saying, ah, you know what, this data that I generate is valuable. But the trouble is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas, it's not actually very valuable. My own data all by itself is not very valuable at mm. all. It's, it's only valuable when there are a billion of me yep. sharing our data and we're finding correlations exactly. between us. So the problem, to come back to you with my cynicism, is Go that... Is, uh, the problem I'm trying to get you off the hook, Thomas. The, the, problem is, the problem we're saying is a bit like Wi-Fi, you can opt in or you can opt out. It's actually, we don't really want people to opt out at all. We want yeah. everybody to be contributing their yeah. data because then we'll treat healthcare... We'll solve problems in healthcare yeah. much better. But, but, but then, you know, it's, again, it's this choice. But what, what we're trying to, to achieve, uh, again, with, with GenSmart is, is to create this digital representation of your health, right? Uh, but then you get the data and you own those data. Then you can exchange them if you want with research. Uh, not only for, you know, um, the pharmaceutical, let's say, will pay for your old genome uh, and they will gather hundreds of them, uh, uh, but they will pay for that. So you can be paid again. To can I, just, 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 yeah. just a second, just, just to speak that so what's what am i speaking to there is that at the moment if you go through and get your uh, genetic makeup uh, made basically the the business model is that people don't really care about uh doing that it's more about they sell your data to big pharma 
Mm. Okay, so it's aggregated information before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some 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 of the companies. And so what you what you're trying to talk about is you reverse that on its head and actually go own your data and then decide when you want to sell it to certain projects. Mm. So let's say you have a, a, a notification that says, hey, uh, I don't know, uh, Pfizer is trying to do a research thing. Do you want to opt in your information and yeah. get like ten dollars? I don't know, whatever it is. Yeah. Is that is that what you're talking about? How much would it yeah. be? Well, it, it, it depends <laughs> on the research. What's, a, yeah, what's an a, offer here, Thomas? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this well, is where David goes, look, know, look I don't know exactly. Data. Can, can vary I'll change my mind about but this. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> but it could solve maybe the problem of, you know, uh, you don't have to work for a day, maybe. Who knows? But if you do that on a regular basis. But but the idea as well is, like, if you opt in again, if you have this certain gene variant and they are looking for this gene variant, you, you can have this platform where you all anonymously, um, you know, you've got you've got created this peer platform where you have in, in one side us, okay, and, and the big pharma and the research, uh, and oh well, you have this apoigene. They are looking for uh, people who have this genes variation. Um, you, you would like to 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 do that, and you'll be paid for it. Um, that could be a, a good model. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's uh, but uh, and I think it's fair because it's your information, it's your data. Right now, the way it's being done is like uh, we tell you about your ancestry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a lot of companies do that. Like, yeah, I'm three percent uh, Inuit. Great. <laughs> uh, but but then you know uh, the reality is uh, at the back, your your data are being sold. Um, yeah. So we're going to open up to uh, the floor. Uh, you've been so super patient. So we have the fabulous Cloud, who's got a microphone. So just if I can ask to wait till you get the microphone to actually ask your question so that everyone can hear it. And uh, yeah, that's it. So I think, yeah, yeah, Heather had a, had a question. <laughs> well, you get one question, Heather. You get one question. I'll start with one. Um, thank you very much. That's been incredible. Um, my, my question is, why is it in pharmaceuticals' interest to help us get well? Well, because they have changed the model, actually, I think. Um, um, there's a rise of people who are being proactive towards their health. Um, and, and I think if they keep going on a treating aspect of, you know, uh, producing drugs and, and else. Uh, but there's also things like pharmacogenomics, which is basically tells you what drugs is the best for you. Um, and those are of their interest, obviously. Um, because even right now, like in the UK, more than 10,000 people die every year of misuse of I mean, drugs, adverse reaction. That could totally be preventable. And we're already doing that within the app, telling you like, um, you know, what works for you and what don't work and what can kill you. <laughs> so you want to know about those things uh, before being prescribed uh, some drugs. Cool, thanks. Dave, you anything you want to add on that? No. No, cool. Next question, yeah, at the back. Hi. Um, yeah, sorry, I forgot, but do you mind but just saying your name so we can then say thank you for the question? Oh, yeah, um, I'm Sam. Hi, Hi Sam. Uh, so, you, you, David, you evoked Chef Bourdain and his death, um, his recent death, uh, doing ostensibly what he loved, uh, which was going around and looking at food from all over the world. Now, a lot of chefs, um, I'm a chef, I'm going to predicate this, um, <laughs> a lot of chefs... Uh, start uh, when they're 15, I didn't, um, but they they rise up through the ranks and eventually, um, when they can, they do not do as many hours as the bottom people do. Um, now, Chef Bourdain pretty much reached that um, and, he was, and he had left the kitchen, he was doing other stuff, but uh, a lot of chefs do die in the kitchen, as in they are still cooking when they die um, at like 70, 80. Um, but there are enormous health problems uh, associated with being a chef, and Chef Bourdain was a good example of that. Um, so where do you, 
you know, how how do you uh, how do you rectify the difference between um, what what you say you want people to do is you know work work shorter hours, work three days a week, I think it was, uh, when essentially if you get to the top of your field, which these people are striving to do, then you naturally uh, leave the seven day. So, so what's, what the the, what's the question? I'm a bit confused so about how, what the question how, is. How, it, it's it's that you you want you want everyone to be working this three day week, but everyone is not superlative. So how how do you how do you uh, sort of close that gap? Okay, so I first of all um, I need to clarify. I obviously wasn't clear. I don't want everyone to be working three day week. I want people to be working three day week if they want to work a three day week. In other words, I think I want the option there. And there are plenty of people who would like to work a you know a ninety hour week. And for example, you see this often with musicians. Who you know, the, but when you add in the practice and the touring and the performance, they get to a certain level. You know, through Malcolm Gladwell's famous ten thousand hours or whatever, they get to that level of skill. Now, don't get me wrong. If somebody wants to work all the time, that's their business. What I'm asking is a bit like Socrates would ask us: Am I working the work I want to be working, or the work that somehow the culture expects me to work? So when it comes to things like you know, star chefs or indeed star musicians or actors or whatever, we're used to this idea that there's, there's a sort of level of grind lots of long hours, and then gradually you get better and better and better, and eventually you have an easier life. And in fact, that's, each, that's actually the general metaphor of work that we have. We tend to think that more junior people in the office should do more than those kind of executives who seem to float around in first-class flights and, you know, just in the limo all the time. But I think, actually, that's not necessarily... You use the word naturally, and I would, I would say nothing is natural. I would say that actually we've invented this way of working. It seems to be the cultural way we approve of work. And actually we as individuals, especially now, you know, we're in a rich country, in a rich situation, in a very comfortable position. You know, even if we lose everything, we'll still have the National Health Service in this country. You know, we're very supported. We could as individuals say, you know what, I want to challenge that cultural narrative just in my life. Everyone else can get on with their long hours and slaving away in the kitchen or whatever it might be. I want to do something different. I never want to work to this level. Now, I might say, I never therefore want to be, you had a very good word, superlative. But that's fine. The way I'm going to judge how I'm successful in work is going to be on my own terms. And this is where I come back to emotional intelligence. Actually, that's the conversation we have with ourselves and say, what does it mean to me to be successful in work? Do I even know the answer to that question? Now, it may well be, what it means is I'm going to be a three, star, a three Michelin star chef and have a TV series and whatever. Then there's your route. You know, lots of hard work in the kitchen and many, many hours in the week. But it might mean something else. And that's our job, to find out about that. I, what I love about what you just said, David, is this idea that I think um, just asking yourself the question of, like, what does success mean to me? Like, what, what, does, what does that mean to me? And sometimes that can be, like, such a, a mind blow for a lot of people who've never actually stopped and asked themselves a question. I used to, and a few people in this room uh, tonight, uh, met through a program where I used to, uh, coach and lead the kind of transition away from a job that they weren't happy with to try and figuring out fulfilling work and just asking their question was was a big game changer yeah did you have anything you want to add or no, no I mean no, uh, we're talking about um, you know this personal aspect and it is the same when it comes to health or anything is is um, what is your perspective of you being healthy it can be just having more energy it can be just um, you know so it, it needs to be defined on that and what we do is we have the representation of the uh, you know uh, certain magazine um, and this is this is the picture of health but health is also individualized now uh, but it needs to be different for 
a person to another is we all have our conception. So yeah, I think but, it's, but it's interesting. You just bring like health. It's, it's interesting you bring up health because actually health brings up really interesting emotive moments. You know, yeah. somebody says, for example, I have an infectious disease, but I don't want treatment. Yeah. This is kind of a very bold thing that they might say. I mean, infectious is actually a bad example because you might not want them to infect someone else. But say, I have an infectious disease, I don't <laughs> want treatment, but I promise I won't infect anyone else. I will just decay and die. Yeah. We kind of would feel, I think we'd feel very uncomfortable about that person's decision. We try to counsel them, we try to intervene. Why we would may even do that? Force them. Especially for yeah. the family, yes. Yeah. And, and so th it comes to this philosophical idea about who's in charge of our body. And I, th I guess that my you know, silly discomfort with your project earlier was actually, I'm a bit worried that AI is in charge of my body if I'm mm. uploading all this data and then following no, the instructions onto my app. The <laughs> well, there's, <coughs> so just, <laughs> just also to speak to the fact that, um, I want to speak to something that sometimes it can be very easy to say, you know, figure out what your success is and go and do it. But what can happen often is that you realize that, wow, I'm in an environment that's not going to care or foster this change that I'm seeking. And that can be hard. So I just want to kind of put that in the room because sometimes you can realize, oh, I don't belong in this culture and nothing I will do be able to change this culture. Then, then I might mean I need to move on. So whether that's in a kitchen or that's in a boardroom, it, it applies the same. So just want to give yourself a little bit of that, of that patience. So we'll just get a couple more. Yeah, we've got a question in the middle. Don't mind passing the mic. That'd be great. Just remember to say your Hi name there. first. Yeah, yeah Dima. Um, I guess my question is a little bit about speed. I think it's a, it's a bit about the speed of psychology and Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how somebody flows up that hierarchy and how fast AI is moving. <laughs> so to get people psychologically to start thinking this way requires a lot of experience. You have to bounce yourself against the world a little bit, see what the world feeds you back, ask yourself a lot of questions, test some things out, iterate. Blah, blah. It's not like unlike a startup in some ways. And then there's AI, which is displacing people as we speak and moving at an ever faster with deep learning, um, you know, exponential curve. And are we going to be able to get the answers to these questions for the truckers that are going to get replaced in the next five to ten years, are they going to do the soul searching and come up with the answer before AI comes in and says, off you are? That's, I'm going to point that question to you, David. Um, personally, I think we're not. I think speed is the real problem. Technology is advancing at incredible speed at the moment, more so than we've ever seen digital technology advance. There's quite a number of reasons for that. One is Moore's Law, where in effect, technology doubles in capability about every couple of years. But especially, as you say, the developments we've made in neural networks and in artificial intelligence have led to, in particular areas, unbelievable breakthroughs in technology. Um, and actually, things are moving very, very fast. And what's happening in the jobs market is exactly as you say. Um, in the old days, by which I mean every all the time from year zero to about 1990, we invented a new technology. It put some people out of work, but after a while, we'd invented some new jobs for those people to do, and the world grew and expanded. Since about the 1990s, this is not just me quoting this, this is a very good MIT study which shows this, um, technology seems to be getting faster a bit too fast. That Almost as soon as we invent a new job, technology seems to be able to do it. A, a good example in my business, and I've worked in the print media for almost all my career, is that when I started, there were these people called hot metal typesetters, which set typography in printing. And they had a proper job. They had training and apprenticeships and a growth through their career. And then Apple invented the Apple Mac and the user interface that that was about, and desktop publishing. And in an instant, they lost their jobs. 
But many of them became website designers because this was a completely new job that no one knew. We didn't even know what a website was, let alone a website designer. And suddenly the internet came along and we had websites. Now, um, most website design is done by AI. It's done online on those services, you know, Wix and yeah. Squarespace and whatever. So now we've got a new job that the, compu the computers took a previous job out and the new job now has been eroded. And faster and faster and faster this, this cycle is going to happen. And I think the truth is when we think about the truckers or whatever, we won't, because I don't think we're prepared culturally and in, 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 in as our society, ready for this enormous change in the world of work. Because we expect there be certain jobs and somehow governments promise those jobs. Now, two things are going to happen, I think. One is that we will get to a point that even if the technology is available, people might not lose their jobs because of this, because there has to be some sort of human change as well. And the, a good example is the PC was invented in, what, the middle 80s, I think. Is that you right? wrote an article the saying about the death of, of, of offices. And well, no, I, well, I wrote an article in 1989 about this new thing called the modem, which had been, <laughs> which had been invented, how within two years there won't be any offices, because there won't be any documents. We'll all be at home <laughs> you know, sharing this thing around yeah. this modem. You know, and indeed, you know, we're all surrounded by paper in offices. So there's a human resistance to taking on the opportunity of technology. And in fact, what happened in the 80s was actually when, even though PCs were around, there were still a lot of secretaries, in, certainly in American corporations and British corporations. And it was only in the, the economic recession of the 1990s, the early 1990s, when lots of people were laid off, that suddenly lots of PCs came into offices and those secretaries lost their job. So it may well be that we do get self-driving trucks, but for whatever reason, political, cultural, inertial, we don't let them take away the jobs. But then you get a recession and suddenly it's economically dumb to employ a lorry driver. And at that point is when I think we need to be, all those lorry drivers and all of us need to have that question, what does it mean for me to be in work? What, what do I look for in work and to have that conversation Great. with ourselves? Great, thank you. We'll, we'll take one last question. I think there was a hand up, yeah. Hi, I'm Mary. Um, thank you very much. It's been fascinating tonight. Um, I have a question. I think it's kind of related to that, but it's what, David, you touched about it just at the end, but what's the one thing that you would change in our education system that might start that process earlier of people asking the question? So before you answer that, just going to be conscious of the time, we're going to try and... Uh, <laughs> that's why, that's why get, I said get, one get thing. Get to the root of the answer, because I'm just thinking, oh, shit, we just opened a whole kind of world. Um, yeah, do you want to get a crack? Have you got any answers to that, Thomas? What do you, what well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you do it. <laughs> but Okay, so um, I don't have kids, so I don't have a direct recent connection with the education system so I'm speaking a little bit about my own experience in education and also as a teacher. Um, I think that uh, the, there's a kind of one thing that the education system should cultivate in people and that's, I've said it again, emotional intelligence and in particular, particular emotional intelligence which I would call curiosity. I think actually that the world is changing faster and faster and faster. It's very exciting, the world. And actually the big skill all of us need, and certainly kids and students need when they're entering, especially the world of work, is a kind of curiosity to be able to ask the question, not only about, ah, what's this about? How can I do this in a different way? Which we usually say something like creativity in work. But what will this work, you know, be like in 10 years time? And I think we need to be, asked, we need to be interested in asking that question rather than terrified of asking. I do believe, I write articles for magazines and I do believe there's already software which writes articles for newspapers, they're short and they're rather boring. I really believe in 10 years time there'll be software which kind of writes the, the 
I was going to say the good quality articles I write, but that's someone else's judgment. The quality of articles that I'm being asked to write yeah. in magazines. And then I'll have to say, well, what do I do for work? Because that software will be cheaper. I need a curiosity about, you know, I'm 54 now. What will happen when I'm 64? What will the world be like? And so I think in education, we need to cultivate and really enjoy it when kids are curious about things. There's, there's something about what you're speaking to, which is around also adaptability what I'm hearing a lot from the conversation from both of you tonight, which is kind of having this ability to actually, if you're being rigid and if you're too stuck in your own ways, then the future is probably going to be scary and what's coming might not be as comfortable as you'd like to be. But if you have this kind of curiosity mindset and, and, and aware and, and to be adaptable, then I think it's about how can you find the excitement in, in this new opportunity that comes arise, whether that's a change in jobs or, uh, or what have you. Um, so we're, we're going to close the Q&A, but uh, we're going to have a bit of a moment at the end where we can kind of mingle around. And I'm sure uh, David and, and Thomas would be happy to, to hang around for a few minutes and if you had a few questions. So just before we, we wrap up, please give a big round of applause for uh, Thomas and David. Thank you very much. And you can take the, um... So, was that interesting? Yeah. yeah. There's there's something amazing about. Um, actually, this is what it is. Like over the last 100 episodes, right? So I haven't interviewed 100 people because I've had a few solo rounds, as I call them, where it's just me and myself and I. Um, but here's what I've learned: uh, sitting across at least 90 plus guests, is that every single time I, I sit in front of someone, I learn something new. That's, that's number one. And the other thing is that every single person I've ever come across has a story to share. And, and I think one of the, the biggest tragedies that I've seen uh, in the last six years, probably they've been in this kind of like woohoo coaching world, um, is that so many of us make up that our stories don't matter and, and, that, and that it's not important. And, and yet I really want to bring this home to you tonight that every single one of you has a story to tell. So that was it. And, and the other thing I also realized is that as I was going through this, I'd, I was sitting at this really weird intersection. So I, I was a, I'm a life coach, but I coached individuals for, for many years. And then I would interview people like Thomas and David. And so there was this bridge between the two, right, where I would see people who say, I hate my job and I'm unhappy what I'm doing or my business is not going well. And if only I had everything figured out and, and if only I was different, then maybe I'd be happy. And then I'd interview people on the other side. And what I learned was that actually most of these people who had got everything that we thought had figured out were also going through some troubles, were also having some downsides. I, I really recommend you listen to the last uh, three episodes that I've done, especially with Roger Frampton. He's, uh, his TEDx talk has 2.1 million views. He's got over 80,000 followers, he's got a best-selling book. And on the outside, you look at him and you go, he's got everything figured out. This guy is a male model. Um, uh, he's got like he's got partners of like Starbucks and Jack Wheels and all this stuff, and he opened up on the show and talked about actually the reality of that. Uh, sometimes he figures out that he has to get a bar job because he doesn't know how he's going to be paying the bills. And so a lot of people don't realize that this is what's happening also on the other side. So. One of the things that I decided to do last year was to launch uh, an impact accelerator. And, uh, and you'll recognize a few faces here. But what it was, I wanted to prove that if you had an important message or a mission you wanted to put out in the world, then it was your responsibility and duty to do so. And sometimes that can feel a little bit scary. So I put up this program so that people could come together over the course of eight weeks to fine tune their message, find their voice, and start spreading in, in, in the world. And I wanted to celebrate tonight uh, the fact that we have someone in the room. Um, Steph Slack, where's Steph? Yeah, there she is, okay. So Steph was on the Impact Accelerator, and uh, during the Impact Accelerator, she, she wanted to uh, uh, talk about uh, becoming a potential uh, consultant in CSR. 
and uh, going into companies and helping them advise about their sustainability. And at one point in the conversation, she kind of dropped that. She also had this interest for, for men's mental health and male suicide. And, and that got really curious. And I was like, tell, tell, tell us a bit more about that, Steph. And, uh, and I'm not going to be uh, sharing a whole story because you're going to have to go and, and watch a TEDx talk or, or watch it live online. But, Ted, uh, but Steph was affected personally about, uh, about male suicide. And she talked about it with such passion. And there's that moment when you kind of see someone light up. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. When someone tells you about their job, like, yeah, you know, I, I do spreadsheets and, and PowerPoints, and, and that's great. And it's like, oh, but what do you do on the weekend? Oh, but I love this. And they light up. So Steph did that. And in that moment, I went, but Steph, this is what you need to do. Like, you need to talk about males. And everybody in the group was like, yeah, Steph, you need to do this. It's like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. And Steph is now giving a TEDx talk at Folkestone about well, the important questions we need to ask about male suicide. So can we please just give a big round of applause for the courage of Steph going on stage? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I just wanted to show you that it's, it's incredible what happens when you actually put yourself out there and, and share your message. Um, so, uh, you know that awards moment uh, at the end when you kind of like, thank you mom and, uh, and dad for everything you did. I'm not going to thank them, fuck them, they didn't listen to one single episode of my podcast. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so first of all, I just wanted to say a huge, huge thank you to all of you tonight uh, for making this happen. Like, this has been an incredibly emotional journey to get here tonight to make this happen, and I just feel like super cozy with all of you, uh, in a non-weird way. Um, so, just a few, just a few thanks. I don't want to forget these. So, so Ellie actually stood up from DNTO made this possible. She came to one of my workshops on how to launch a podcast. And at the, after she said, Mark, if you ever want to do a live uh, episode, I'd, I'd love to host you. And so she's given us this room. Um, so super grateful. Uh, there's a guy who can't be here today. And I had a little um, idea, actually, might do it later. But he's called Ryan McGee. Here's a guy in America who's been listening to the show. And he said, look, Mark, I'd love to be able to support you. I don't know what I can do. Tell me what I can do to help. And I was incredibly touched, and he's been slaving away <laughs> over the last few weeks, listening to every single episode, pulling out one minute of the best moments of each episode. I don't know how you know how hard that is. I mean, I just cause love every single episode. Um, and then doing a thumbnail so we could put on social media. So if you've been following me on Instagram, you've seen those little audio clips, that's Ryan who's done all those, so it's incredible. Uh, there's Lulu from White City Place that came and helped us out, sort this out. Um, of course, uh, can we have a big round of applause, please, for Vicky, Sarah, Lotta, Sonny, who volunteered here tonight their time to come and make this happen. So a big round of applause for them, please. Yeah. Uh, we've got Tom and Luke at the back who've got their videos and I'm sure they'd like to capture a few of you and what you thought about tonight, what you got out, so make sure to go and speak to them. And we've got Cornell at the back from Flint Media who's been with me over the last year covering all my events and photography, so if I look half decent, it's, it's thanks to that man. Um, and then you've got Emma Romano who designed this lovely little flyer for tonight. How cool is that? Um, and we've got Jenna Stansu, and like to thank the sponsor of the podcast, Hedgy Productions, uh, who've absolutely been amazing. And um, obviously my partner, Julie, uh, who's been... Can you please stand up just for a second so everybody can, can see you? Please stand up. <laughs> Give a round of applause for my partner, who... Who will kill me for this. Um, no, but who's had to put up with me over the last few years of, of going up and down. And since we've had a baby, I can't record my podcasts anymore at home. So, David, I'm sorry that we can't get to hang out again on the couch. Um, so, and the last but certainly not least, um, I wanted to give a very, very special thank you to this person who... Um, do you know the concept of generosity of spirit? 
Yeah, it's like people who do things and you don't know why, but they do it and they're just very happy to. And at first you feel a bit awkward and, and uncomfortable to receiving that help, but they just come and help you out. And this person over the last few events that I've done has always stepped up and always helped in a big way. And, and like the reason why all of these beautiful people know what they're doing and, and being sort of beautifully orchestrated is thanks to her. So, Cloud, can you please come up just for a second on the stage? Yes. Please give a round of applause for Cloud. And uh, I just wanted to give you a big, a big thank you very much for making this happen. And uh, Cloud is looking for a job. So anybody here who's got a job for Cloud, she's absolutely amazing. Okay, so that, that's it. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, it's coming to an end. Uh, we've got a bit of time mingling around. We've got some, our guests are going to hang out for a few minutes. But I just wanted to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being here tonight, for making this real, for making this happen. And I hope that no matter what happens, you will go out into the world and, and share your message and your story because it matters. Thank you so much, and I'll see you soon. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed uh, this very, very special episode as much as we did creating it because really this was a team effort and do this without all this team and, and, and i know it sounds a bit like the oscars but it was really important um now as i mentioned the the, the lucky winner will be uh pascal uh right brain geek who's going to come on the show and is going to share her story and i'm super super excited to get her on board uh we've got some exciting guests lined up as well so ladies and gentlemen i, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart thank you thank you thank you so much thank you to david baker and to Thomas olivia for making and giving up their time to be there today thank you for all of you who listened to all the episodes it's i'm truly truly humbled by all of you and grateful and just a happy human right now so thanks to all of you who came thanks to all of you who supported who shared the love on all your social media i couldn't be doing this without you and and hey either this is to the next 100 episode or this is to the next big project that i might be announcing soon who knows until then have a great week thank you and you're beautiful <laughs>